The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. The logic behind human thought evades me. Or the lack of it? Throughout your history, men have volunteered readily to fight and die to preserve a nation and its people. Yet when the whole planet faces destruction, those people down there... It's hard for human beings to do something about tomorrow's catastrophes, let alone one that's years off. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, June 24th, 2021. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be I am joined once again in studio by Dr. Salim Mansour, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Western Ontario, in an effort to continue the conversation we began at the beginning of June, a conversation that neither of us at that time expected would become an account of the rise of individualism within the collective. And it was a discussion that ended up being more of a precursor to our intended discussion that we will once again attempt to tackle right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archived broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Well, Salim, as with our last get-together, I once again have no idea where our conversation today will take us, but you've been expressing somewhat of a sense of urgency in addressing the historical developments of, I guess, Western culture since 1945 to the present. How is it that a fuller appreciation of history can possibly assist us in dealing with our current crisis today, or is that even the purpose of this discussion? Well, first, thank you, Bob, for inviting me once again. Yeah. It's, it's always a always a pleasure sitting across from you and reflecting upon historical question, philosophical question that is not very often discussed in in public media. So, w- what we started to talk about, and it became, as you mentioned, a discussion upon the idea of freedom in terms of individualism, and we never engaged in what was in the back of my mind the question. How did we get here? 1945, May 8th, was a victory in Europe day. Right. Uh, The war ended in Europe. The war would end in in the Pacific against Japan in August after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But May 8th, the war ended in Europe. The allied countries, of which Canada was a very significant member, Britain, United States, Canada... Australia, New Zealand, and then the Commonwealth countries under the, in the, within the British Empire, they had gotten together to defeat Germany under Nazi power, under Hitler. So what was the idea of Nazism? What was the idea, the political movement that Hitler represented? We can look back now in time and say it was totalitarianism based upon race ideology, racial superiority. I mean, that was the mobilizing issue in German politics that led to the rise of Nazism. And eventually, 
it was against race-based totalitarianism that the Allied power fought and defeated it in 1945. So come forward in time, and here we are in 2021, and we are in the thick, thick of cancel culture, critical race theory. It was a news item in Canada that the mayor of Victoria in British Columbia announced that there will be no July 1st Canada Day festival. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. It's locked down. My guess is that they will basically lock down July 1st celebration eventually all across Canada. We have not had in this period of 15 months and counting on the basis of the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. We have not had Christmas when the churches were open after the Christmas of 2019. We have not had Easter in 2020. We have not had Easter or Christmas in 2020 and 2021. All of the significant dates have been in a sense, you know, canceled, marking the Remembrance Day, November 11th, marking the Victory Day, May 8th, uh, the D-Day. It was the 77th anniversary of D-Day, June 6th, in which Canadians fought and died. And, and so the question that I had in mind to ask, you know, in a sense, and explore, who won the war in 1945? That is, the Allied power. And what happened in 77 years? It seemed they, they won the war and they lost the peace because what we have right now, rampant across the Western world, the Western civilization, is another totalitarian ideology based upon not race, but based upon the Marxist categories of class and class oppression. But now it has fused with racial identity, the critical race theory, multiculturalism. Yeah, surprise, surprise, right? Yeah. Exactly. So so this is the 77 years that you have to think back and, and ask, how did this happen? Was it a, a slow process or indeed it happened quite rapidly and we never paid attention to the transition in which Canada, United States, England, France have been taken over by the ideological left. You know, you say we lost the war, uh, or we won the war, but lost the peace. I know a lot of people on the left and on the totalitarian side, they would call their ideology the peace, you know, the, the peace of brought by the state and by state control, and that that control is what brings the peace, and they see individualism as chaos and, and, and disruption all the time. Is that part of the ideology, like, or is they just twisting meaning of words? Well, the issue of freedom has always been there in the sense of a political movement in the making of the modern world. It goes back to, for instance, the French Revolution and the ideology of the rights of man, the French Revolution, in which the slogan is liberté, égalité, fraternité, the rights of man is, you know, embracing and proclaiming freedom of the man and making 
of a society that will allow for the individual to live a life of freedom. Looking back at it now, you know, I maintain the argument that in the French Revolution, there was the energy, the ideas, the values of enlightenment. And in that sense, freedom is the principal notion of the idea of enlightenment. So man is not the means to any end. Man is himself an end. But man can only be an end unto himself, provided the man can live a life according to his will, you know, which of course also means taking into account the will of the other because my freedom cannot be at the expense of denying the freedom of the other. So a society is built around the notion of how we can preserve freedom and yet not allow freedom to morph into another form of oppression, of control, of ultimately an authoritarian and a totalitarian government. So this has been the tension inside the ideas of the French Revolution, also the American Revolution. And so we have, in the first phase, the eruption of freedom. In the second phase of the revolution is the Jacobinism, egality which leads to, you know, Robespierre yeah. and, and, and the guillotine and the question of control and the state. And the state is going to create the basis of freedom. So that tension, that worm is in that two notion. On the one side is about freedom, and freedom means nothing it, unless it is the freedom of the individual. And on the other side is the question of equality equality and who or what is going to define equality in the abstract all men are born equal that was the declaration of independence in the case of america the, the jeffersonian idea right you know and all men are born equal and are endowed by the creator with inalienable rights that is the right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That's about freedom. I would say, I mean, this is a very fascinating, fascinating philosophical issue. The man most responsible for creating the groundwork of what eventually becomes the totalitarian urge, and the totalitarian urge or the totalitarian temptation is first and foremost in the mind and the head of the intellectuals. The intellectuals are driven, in a sense, with totalitarian temptation. Marx was an intellectual before, you know, anything else. You know, it is his idea, the Communist Manifesto, and all the other writings of Marx. But who is the father of this totalitarian temptation in terms of the modern world that leads up to the French Revolution, coming out of the, the Age of Enlightenment? The man is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I was going to bring him up. Jean-Jacques Rousseau is, in that sense, the godfather of totalitarian, uh, totalitarianism. Because what basically, when you start analyzing Rousseau's writing, the whole breadth of it, whether it's the social contract, whether his books, Emile and Confessions, uh, his writing on the discourses on equality uh, or inequality, what comes out, particularly in the social contract, you know, what comes out is very clear. He's talking about freedom 
and his love for man in the abstraction, mankind. Right. He is the great defender of humanity. He is a man whose heart is virtuous and open to embracing all of humanity. But when it comes to the particular, the individual, he sees man as a loathsome creature, you know, full of all the problematic. So how does he reconcile these two? Hi, I'm Mark Pellegrino, and today I'm going to be talking about liberty. That's right, liberty. Now, liberty is a word that everyone in the world seems to know and use, but very few understand. Okay, so liberty is freedom, but freedom from what? Ah. There's the rub. See, people want to be free from all kinds of things. The problem is, most of those freedoms don't boil down to liberty. Wait, did I just imply freedom is not the same as liberty? I did. Donald J. Trump is now president of the United States. Well, technically, that's true. Hear me out. Freedom, in the broadest sense, just means without constraints. But the real world is filled with all kinds of natural constraints. Take gravity, for example. You want to fly? Leap a tall building in a single bound? Gravity will constrain you, and there's not a lot you can do about it. Well, you could, but... Fly! Be free! <laughs> Life itself is very constraining. You want to live? You gotta work! It's okay, you're not unusual. Every living thing in the world, from the smallest bacteria to the most complex organisms, must work to live. And every living thing in the world knows that, except human beings. Only human beings think that the conditionality of life and the facts of reality are things you should be liberated from. I, uh, I don't like my job, and uh, I don't think I'm gonna go anymore. Now where did that come from, I wonder? The desire to be free from the world as it is seems to be a natural part of the human psyche. People have always wanted to have their cakes and eat them too. And through the ages, there have been a steady supply of utopian thinkers to fill our imaginations with stories that appeal to that desire. Now, the utopian idea was this. Human existence was once pristine, conditionless, and innocent, but is now fallen, depraved, and harsh. The object is to return once more to that pristine and innocent time by creating a social system that could make that possible. And that's understandable, right? For most of human existence, life really was hard. Conditions did suck everywhere and still do in far too many places in the world, so it's understandable to want to be liberated from them. The problem is you can't. You can only be liberated from another moral agent, i.e. human being. You can't be liberated from the conditionality of the natural world and the constraints of life. Now, what does that mean? It means natural constraints just are and have to be understood and worked around. A moral agent, i.e. human being, is another story. Moral agents do everything by choice. And since one of those choices could be to impede another moral agent's ability to live and work within his own natural constraints, moral agents set up a rule between them not to. And that rule is what we call liberty. Wait. So liberty is a constraint? Yes, it is the constraint of force so that moral agents can work within the natural constraints of life peaceably. Translation, liberty is freedom from people because people are the only things that can use force when they don't have to. We have to find a code of conduct that we can all agree to live by. 
people can oppress you. Life and the realities of life can't. They just are. So any liberation movement that seeks to liberate people from conditionality in order to achieve this winds up achieving this because the natural constraints of reality and life cannot be pretended out of existence. At best, the burden of complying with these unalterable realities can be shifted temporarily to another. But since they are the price of living, the cost must be borne by someone. So ask yourself if you want freedom or liberty. Funny you mentioned Rousseau, Salim, because Rousseau was one of the few characters I remember taking in high school history. I had a grade 12 history teacher who was just really into Rousseau, let me tell you. And uh, I have to say, history didn't make a lot of sense to me in high school, something that I might revisit again. But how, how, how did Rousseau reconcile freedom with equality, and why is it different from what we might be talking about? Yes, I mean, that, that is in, indeed reconciliation he offers is what is eventually the temple of totalitarianism, in my view. Because what Rousseau says is that the act by which or through which man should create the good society is the general will. The general mm. will is about freedom but it is also about equality. I mean, the famous sentence of Rousseau, if I may recall, from Social Contract, is man is born free, but is found in chain, yes. or, or something of that sense. So the chain has to be broken. Chain of what? Chain of oppression, and between the oppressed and the oppressor. So the reconciliation that he works out is there is the general will, and the philosopher, or the great legislator, who understands and decodes the general will. It is about freedom. It is about equality. And it is through the general will and the imposition of the general will, the defense of the general will, that a free society is constructed. So it is not about the individual wanting to be free. It is the general will says that you've got to be free and we're going to make you free. But then the conditions are laid down, you know. Right. Well, how would how would he measure the general will? How would he even... Well, this is not physics. This right. is, you know, <laughs> political philosophy. And the general will is understood by the great legislator or the philosopher king. So in this case, Rousseau is the great legislator, you know, the man who speaks for the general will. The revolution is about freedom, but it is anarchy. But who is going to establish order in the anarchy? Who is going to represent the general will? And that is where it comes, you know, the parliament or uh, the assembly. But within the parliament and the assembly is the great legislator, is the great leader. Equality and freedom. Freedom means nothing, as I said a little while ago, if it is not the freedom of the individual. So the, the social contract that the man works out in the Lockean term is that it will protect the freedom of each without depriving the freedom of any. Right, and that defines equality on an individualistic basis. Exactly, and that's, the, for instance, the American Constitution works out this problematic, you know, that's the Republican Constitution. Equality, however, is a collective notion in the sense me and you being equal is a relationship of two individuals. Which is the conversation we got lost in last time. That's how right. individualism That's right. emerged from exactly. the collective, yes. So in, in, an, in a collective, all people are equal to one another. This is a relationship. 
But who's going to establish that relationship? Who's going to monitor that relationship? Who's going to judge that relationship that it doesn't become unequal or it doesn't become oppressive? All of these are problematics. And there's the general will or the great leader or, you know, the, the general secretary of the Politburo or the central committee in a communist society. So this is the imposition. Now, it, now you said earlier that where, where, where these ideas are coming from are from the intellectuals. From the intellectuals. Right. Exactly. Would, would that not be the same group that we're calling the elites today in some abstract way? And aren't we dealing with that same phenomenon today that we have this group uh, that, that is really apart from society in a way, living in its own bubble? Well, it's always been the case. Yeah. You know, th- and, and this is the paradox. This is the problem. And so in the American Revolution, what was worked out, and if you read the Federalist Paper, you read the Declaration of Independence, you read the American Constitution, what is worked out is that we the people, we the people are the one who basically is represented by our choice through the people whom we elect. And the Constitution, it binds the people whom we elect to what they can and what they cannot do, you know. The Constitution is not about the people in that sense. That is, our freedom doesn't come through the Constitution. Our freedom is the inalienable right endowed by the Creator. And if you don't believe in the Creator, you might say it is the inalienable right of the individual in nature. So it is not the gift of George Washington or Jean-Jacques Rousseau or anybody else or Justin Trudeau that they're giving us our freedom, you know, free speech, free association, freedom of worship, freedom of assembly. This is our inalienable right. And so what the Constitution does is tells you, Bob, who we have elected as the president or as a senator or as a congressman, we tell you that you've got to abide by the Constitution. You cannot pass laws or you cannot do anything that is going to abridge our freedom. You know, it lays down the marker. And if you want to do that, then you have to go through the process. And the process is... In in the American Constitution, first of all, there's checks and balances, but ultimately the process is that you have to bring amendments. And the amendment is not a simple vote, you know. It is a heavily weighted vote. Now, I've heard many philosophers describe the concept of inalienable rights as being rights which are not transferable. They belong to the individual. You can't give them away. You can't sell them. You can't you know, change them. They are non-transferable, which I thought was a, a very interesting way to look at it. Like, what was the significance of that? How does that... Well, it, it, uh, this, these have been played out in marvelous writing, but the point is, at, at the heart of it is, take, for instance, me as a father. My child is born with inalienable rights. I am the father, but the child is born with inalienable rights. I cannot take my child and sell him into slavery. Right. He's not my property. And those rights are your child's, not yours. That's right. Right. Those are inalienable rights. That's a good way to describe it. 
It was played out in, in this marvelous book, The Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy. But the story, the mayor of Casterbridge gets drunk in the scene. He gets drunk, goes into the bar, gets drunk, doesn't have the money. And then he wants to get the money and he puts up his wife on an auction. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, uh, so, so much for her inalienable right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I mean, so it is non-transferable. It is inalienable. It doesn't belong to anybody. It is not a property, you know. The formulation could have been life, liberty, and property. Yes. And that was the Lockean concept. Right. But for the founding fathers in America, particularly Jefferson, who was writing the Declaration of Independence, he was a slave owner just as George Washington was a slave owner. They did not put life, liberty, and property. They put pursuit of happiness because, you know, the slaves in that sense were property. That's right, yeah. You know, possession. And it opens up the whole door to the argument, why didn't they banish slavery, emancipate slavery at that time? Well, they could only do whatever they could do at that time, you know. You have to take the political reality of where you're at. But if they had written in life, liberty, and property, they would have been in a pickle. Because of the contradiction of slavery. Precisely. I've heard property described very well as the enabling right that allows us to exercise life and liberty. Because if you don't have the right to property, you don't have the right to life or liberty. You, ha- you don't even have freedom of speech. You need, like these microphones, are our property through which we can speak, a home in which you live, the land on which you farm. So the ultimate property is your life. But because it's inalienable and non-transferable, you can't yeah. look at it as property. Well, because then Marx will take the question of life, that is labor, and make that into the core issue, labor theory of value. All right, yeah. You see? So life and, and a person to be able to pursue his life according to his will and according to his desires, what he wishes to do with it, he acquires property. Yes. But property written into this Declaration of Independence would have mean acquiring property in terms of another man's life, that is the slave. Right. And that is unacceptable. Ah, that's now, now I see it very clearly why they couldn't do it that way, right. The founding fathers were great philosophers themselves. Yes, they were. So this was, this was a revolution that had to happen, and it, that, that was the civil war that they had to go through in which the slaves were emancipated. But coming back to the question of equality, equality is a relationship, and to make sure that in a society everybody is equal, this is an abstract concept, equality, there has to be power. And what happens after the French Revolution, Jacobinism, going all the way into the birth of Marx and Marxism, the emphasis changes from freedom to equality. In slavery, there's an open ripoff, one guy stealing from another, taking, his, taking in, a, in a sense, his hard-earned labor. And where's the analogy with the welfare state in which people are being given certain guarantees? In the plantation, the slave owner, who's the master, is using force to compel another guy to work against his will and taking the fruit of his earnings. We should never forget that in a democratic society, the majority is in exactly the same position. 
In other words, in a democratic society, imagine if there are 100 people in a room, in this room, and we take a vote, and let's say our vote is this. Here's a hardworking guy, and our vote is 95 to 1, right, to take his savings and distribute it among all of us. First of all, politically, that's very attractive because a lot more people will benefit. The only guy we're penalizing is one guy, right? So this was the FDR-LBJ model. The FDR-LBJ model was like this. The Democratic Party has to get to a majority in order to perform the ripoff. To get to a majority, we need votes. So let's get these ethnic constituencies. Notice that, by the way, the Democrats never try to persuade these ethnic groups individually. They don't go black guy by black guy and say vote Democratic. The whole idea is to get them all to do it. Let's get them as a group, okay? And the effect is exactly the same. You've got some other guy who doesn't want to pay. That's the key thing. He wouldn't give voluntarily. That's why you have to tax him. That's why you've got to extract the money out of him by force because he's not willing to part with it. It's his own earnings. He's going to try to hold on to it. You have to take it. So even though the force in our society is disguised, it's there. It's real. Take Social Security, right? Here's the FDR idea. Dinesh, welcome to America as a new immigrant. We've got this magnificent program to protect you in your retirement. It's called Social Security. Aren't you excited? I go, FDR, I really appreciate your thinking about me so much. Thank you, but no thank you. I'm an emancipated American, and when I get old, I'm going to provide for my own security. And if I can't, I'll rely on neighbors and friends. And if they won't help me, I will die in the street. So it's an interesting offer, but I say no. What would happen? Well, what would happen would be that they would then start levying fines against me and trying to uh, force me to pay. And let's say I refused. Then SWAT teams would surround my house with guns. And if perchance, now I can't own a gun, but let's say I did have a, a brandish a knife to protect my property, they would literally kill me. They'd shoot me. So this is, so what I'm trying to say is don't be fooled by the fact that this is, there's force here too, just as on the old plantation, disguised but real. Aiming at doing what? Aiming at extracting from me the corn that I've actually grown, that I want to put into, well, my own and Debbie's mouth. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. So this brings us back to our major thesis, I guess, Salim. How did we get here and maybe almost why did we get here? Like, you'd think that people having experienced the blessings of freedom would never, never have abandoned them and, had, and would have done everything to preserve this precious abstraction, I guess, is what it is. Exactly. And when you start connecting the dot, it is no longer mysterious. A pattern emerges and we can see how right at the moment of victory, that is the greatest victory of the West over a totalitarian power, in this case Hitler's Germany, we have a situation where begins our fall. The war ends in May 8, 1945, and Britain goes to election. 
and the victorious leader or the or the leader who has led Britain to victory is defeated in the general election. Yeah, Churchill. Churchill is defeated. The man who replaces Churchill and forms the government is Clement Attlee. Wow, why would they do that? Well, it can be explained in a number of ways. I mean, there is a fatigue of the people, you know, five, six years of immense sacrifice by not only the English people, but by people in all the allied countries. In fact, accumulative. There was the Great Depression. Then came the war. Mm. And now with the war end, what do the people want? They want nothing to do with all of these things. They want to get back home. They want to go on with the life. Britain has a worldwide responsibility. That is the empire. And uh, the people don't want to take any more of those responsibilities of running an empire. So on the human psychology side, it can be explained without much difficulty. But it is the cost of the decision that is the unintended consequences of the decision made by the people, a free people. You're talking about these people who have won the war for freedom. They are going to vote. And what do they vote for? They vote for socialism. Again, for security, which always comes up, doesn't it? The whole thing is bundled together. Security, the search for equality, the power of the state to dispense the goods to the people. And so... Right at the beginning, the victory of socialism in England. But England is not alone, you know. Just pause and think about it. Who was the biggest victor in the war? Now looking back at it, you know, almost eight decades later, who was the biggest victor? The war ended with Europe in flame and in ruin. But the biggest victor was communism. Stalin, the Soviet empire now extended right into the heart of Europe. Germany was divided. But not only was Germany divided, all the major Western powers, France, France had been defeated by Hitler. Now France has been liberated. France, the Fourth Republic is back. De Gaulle is back. De Gaulle is a prime minister of France in 1945. Italy Italy was again defeated, and now a new Italy is going to emerge. Spain, Western Germany, all the northern Baltic states and, and, and Scandinavian countries. So these are all being liberated. But which is the strongest party, political force in all of these societies? It is a communist party. The communist party now is wearing the mantle of freedom fighters. Now, are you saying the communist party as a general uh, global philosophy or as of a particular... No, particular part, party. The French Communist Party was the largest party. Well, if the West voted for this socialism after the war, were they not aware that that was what they were fighting or did they not look at it that way? Well, in, in the war itself, yeah. uh, Soviet Union, the main communist state in the world was the ally of the Western power. And it was the Soviet army coming from the east that basically defeated Nazi Germany. I mean, the West fought too, but it, the, the biggest brunt of the war was confronted by the Soviets, by Stalin. And as the Soviet army rolled westward, you know, it took all of that part of Eastern Europe under its control, including half of Germany. 
you know, we're right. not getting into too much detail. No, I understand. You know, what did Churchill say? An iron curtain has descended from the Baltics to the Adriatics. Half of Europe became, you know, communist. Mm-hmm. But the Western half, which were free societies, they were penetrated by communists, including North America. You know, we have already had in Canada the rise during the Depression year, the making of the new Democratic Party, that is the Commonwealth of Canadian Federation, which is democratic socialism, which is exactly what was the Labour Party in England that comes to power. An irony of that is that in looking at history, if I recall it correctly, there was quite a bit of support for Hitler in the United States, for example, especially among some of the larger industrial people, you know, like Ford and and others who were claiming to support Hitler, and and there was some enthusiasm for that, including the Democratic Party, as I understand. Well, this is again one of those aspects of our history that is layered with so many different contradictions. There was support for Hitler? Yes, because the ruling class at that time in Germany, that is, the financial powers in Germany, the capitalist powers in Germany, they supported uh, Hitler and the Nazis as a balance and, a, and as a check to the communists. The Communist Party was the largest party in Germany. Mm-hmm. You know, the Communist International was trying to push for bringing about a revolution in Germany. Nobody expected, including Lenin and, and Trotsky and Stalin, expected that Soviet Union all by itself could make the world socialist or communist. If you go back to Marxist writing, it is the most advanced countries, the proletariat of the most advanced countries, by definition, will be the largest block of voters in, in a democracy, the working class party. Mm-hmm. So the working class party in Germany, the SPD, or the working class party in uh, Britain, the Labour, or the working class party in uh, France, the Socialist Party. The Communist Party was created after the creation of Soviet Union, but these working class parties would be the spearhead of revolution because it is only in advanced country that a revolution a socialist revolution not only makes sense, it will provide the basis for eventually what is a utopian ideal, a society that will have no state, the state will wither away. In the meantime, there is going to be dictatorship of the proletariat with the great legislator being the general secretary. You know, the big, the big history lesson not learned there is that ends and means are always the same. Yeah, but this is a circular thing. It goes on because it's about control. And before the control withers away, you know, I mean, what is the idealism or the utopianism of Marx, you know, that, you know, from each according to his need to each according to his ability. Other way around, each according to his ability to each according to his need. Yeah, whichever way around. Which which was a contradiction (laughs) in terms... To yeah. begin with. But but that's it. You know, in the morning you will go out, you know, hunting, in the afternoon fishing, in the evening you will sit and write poetry around a campfire. Yeah. You know? So this is this is the utopianism. But to get there, we have to go through the hell of socialism under the dictatorship of the proletariat. Right. You know. So but it has to be in the advanced country. Well, the revolution happened in the backward country of Europe, yeah. that was with Russia. 
And so they're waiting for it. And, and at the end of the Second World War, you almost have a situation that the Western powers that had defeated Hitler had or saw the rise of parties that were parties, you know, of the left. And uh, in the case of Britain, immediately after the war, the election takes place and Churchill is defeated. In the case of United States, throughout the Depression years and into the World War, it is managed by the Democrats. It's Franklin Roosevelt and then Truman. And now we know, we can get into that discussion, we don't have the time, of how deeply the Democratic Party was penetrated by the communists, you know, or communist freerider. I mean, the whole issue about Joe McCarthy, who has been stigmatized, you know, uh, and McCarthyism has become a term in American politics, you know, that is a demagogue Mm -hmm. and, you know, brandishing people and pointing out who they are. In this case, from McCarthy's point, that they are all closet communists. And McCarthy was, you know, targeted and taken out. You know, his life was completely ruined. But McCarthy, if you look back upon it, was a war hero. He fought in the war. Gunner Joe McCarthy, unlike the Canadian Prime Minister, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, both of them are of the same generation, Pierre Elliott Trudeau set out the war. He didn't, he didn't participate in the war. Well, other Canadians went. But Pierre Elliott Trudeau was a man of the left. You know, he was the intellectual. He was a phil- philosopher king in Canadian politics, looking back on it, but man of the left. And through the democratic system, they pushed the left agenda. The left agenda is equality, but it is going to be dictated by the state, mm-hmm. you know. So at the heart of equality argument that, that emerges is the question of oppressed and oppressor. But this oppressed and oppressor in the clear Marxist term was seen as a binary of those who control the means of production, the capitalists, and those who sell the labor, the working class. But now, post-1945, the oppressor and the oppressed is going to be seen in terms of racial identity and gender identity. Okay, class, today we're going to learn about critical race theory. Now, you don't have to like critical race theory, but if you don't, it's because you're a racist. And if you do like critical race theory, it's because you're a racist and you know you need it. Now, let's take a look at the vital points of critical race theory. Point number one. Critical race theory says the most important thing about you is your skin color. That's what defines you as a person. Point number two, critical race theory says that if you're white, you're racist, whether it's conscious or subconscious. Point number three, critical race theory says if you're a minority, you're a victim of a system that's rigged against you. Point number four, Critical race theory says racism is present in all interactions. And I really can't stress this enough to all you young racists. In other words, critical race theory is a movement that seeks to bring about racial unity by creating more racial division. Now let's break some of this down and dive deeper, shall we? Racism occurs in all interactions. It's always present. That's why you have to look for it critically. 
And if critical race theory is correct, that racism is present in all interactions, then after you find it, the racism will still be present. But at least now you can be angry about it. Present in all interactions, Mr. Sears? Yes all interactions. Please consider this common example of one white customer and one black customer walking into a store owned by a white person. If the white owner helps the white customer first, he's only doing so because he's racist and he thinks the black customer is a second-class citizen. And if the white owner was to help the black customer first, we know he's only doing so because he's racist and wants to get the black customer out of his store quickly. Now let's say you have a white store owner and two white customers walk in at the same time and the white owner helps white customer A first. Where's the racism? It's in the fact that they're all white people because the store owner is racist and doesn't allow black people to shop there. And the two white customers are racist too because the only reason why they're shopping there is because black people aren't allowed. A quick critical race theory history lesson. Critical race theory has its roots in Marxism, where you use hatred to divide a society so that others in power can more easily control the population. Socialism and communism. Now while calling critical race theory Marxism in its purest form is accurate, it's a hard sell because a lot of people know what Marxism is. And for those that don't, all they have to do is Google it and they quickly find out. Marxism is a set of social control philosophies put forth by Karl Marx and is used to usher in socialism and eventually communism. The Soviet Union, Cuba, East Germany, North Korea, and Nicaragua have all implemented Marxism and failed with tragic results for their citizens. But this time, as we're doing it to you, it's got a very high probability of working. It's kind of like if you're trying to solve the math problem 4 plus 4 you get the answer wrong dozens of times in a row when you say six, but the next time you say six, you'll probably get it correct. Here's a fun fact. Hitler used critical race theory thinking against the Jews, teaching Germans to see themselves as victims relative to the flaws he convinced them are inherent in all Jews. He used anger, hate, and blame to divide his population so he could control them by getting many to see Jews as the cause of their problems. He even got his version of critical race theory taught in schools, just like we're doing here. It's almost like history is repeating itself. That's also why it's important to rewrite history. That way we won't notice. And finally, class, let's be real. With critical race theory, to be hip and politically correct, in your Instagram bio along with listing your pronouns, you should also list your apology because you know what you've done. And equity, social justice, and inclusion are words that you'll need to repeat often. It's been scientifically proven that the more you say these words, the more you'll be convinced that you're contributing to the reality of them, even though you're doing the opposite. That's it for today's lesson in critical race theory. Now that I've indoctrinated you into what to think of yourself and other people, you've got a bright future ahead of you, kids. Any questions? You talked about this idea of utopia, Salim, this idea that 
you know, the Marxists could lead us to this great utopia where eventually we could go fishing and have all this idleness. But it strikes me that that is not what people want to do with their lives, and nor is it the nature of human beings. Their nature is to be productive, to produce, because that's how we survive. And the idea that they wanted to take over, you know, capital versus labor, that's a contradiction in terms. Capital and labor are two different categories. Capital doesn't compete with labor. They're one and part of the same action, really. So given this utopia, who really wanted it? You know, I even get this idea of just generalized people who don't want to work for a living and who don't want to be productive. That is not something I could live live like. That, that would be a life of utter boredom. Don't we need a challenge? Don't we need that productivity? Isn't that where we get our values from? Well, you're asking me the uh, uh, utopia. Where does the idea of utopia well, That means the unachievable, too, like, you know. The, the, the idea of utopia is, in a sense, a transposition of the Garden of Eden onto the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, last time we talked yeah. about the Garden of Eden, where everything is provided for, and right. man can live happily ever after. But one of the conditionalities is that the man who can live happily ever after and not have to toil is that he has to obey the rules that has been set by, in this case, the creator, you know. And when you disobey, then there is the punishment and you fall out of the Garden of Eden. So can man in this world, he's fallen out of the Garden of Eden because he disobeyed. In other words, he exercised his free will to question why he cannot eat the fruit that has been forbidden to him. And he ate that fruit which was an exercise of his will, and for that he is punished and he is expelled from the Garden of Eden. Now that he is out of the Garden of Eden, can that Garden of Eden be recreated in this world? And what is that Garden of Eden in this world? Where we will live as brothers and sisters. We will live happily ever after. Well, the idea that is at play is freedom and equality and brotherhood. So freedom and equality... And we, we have discussed that matter. The freedom is no freedom unless it is about individual freedom. Right. But all individuals are created equal in the abstract. But in the real world, we are endowed in terms of our individualism. Some are fleet-footed. Some are strong-armed. Some are good swimmers and so on and so forth, you know. Right. You know, we don't, we don't have all the attributes in one man. It is all separated out. But equality means that we are all equal. We should all be five feet tall and none of us should be seven feet tall to play basketball. <laughs> right. So, so if you're going to be all equal, somebody has to set that equality. And so back again, while we're trying to create a utopia that is the Garden of Eden in this world, we have to find a consensus among us or we have to find that wise man, the great legislator or the philosopher king who will say that this is the way we're going to be equal. That already sounds and, like a formula for trouble. <laughs> pardon me? That already sounds like a formula for trouble. Well, I mean, life is trouble because well. you have fallen out of the Garden of Eden. You exercise your will, you're out of the Garden of Eden, and there it is. So there are going to be people who are going to be indolent, 
And there are going to be people who are going to be very, very, you know, given to work and saving. So given to work, saving, they're going to end up becoming capitalists. It's the story of the grasshopper and the squirrel. The grasshopper is having the great time in the summer. The squirrel is running around, you know, yeah. picking up nuts and saving it in, 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 in wherever the nest is. So the winter comes and the grasshopper is now begging of the squirrel for nuts. So these parables explain something about us, human nature, and about society. So when you say everybody wants to do this, everybody doesn't want to do that because somebody would like to just have a good time in summer and somebody else is going to be working hard to, you know, harvest, plow the field, harvest, and save for the winter. Saving and investment becomes capital. Right. Good distinction. Okay, so savings and investment becomes capital, then that is part of that individual's life. But somebody else comes along, the great legislator comes along, uh-uh, you cannot have that, uh, uh, you know, saving. You cannot have that investment because there are all these other people who have none, so we are going to do a redistribution. Right. We're going to take away from your work and redistribute it. So that's where Rousseau's ideology or thinking leads to. The emphasis on equality, which is a collective notion I just pointed out mm. to you, leads to the whole issue of who is going to do the redistribution. And the irony is that only leads to an equality of result, not an equality of rights or individualism, like you know, when you're being forced to support well, other people. Well, equality in the first sense of the word, which is in the American Constitution, we are all born equal. And inalienable right is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So we are all born equal, but then some people engage in life in ways they go out and become farmers and they right, save right. and so on. And the others don't do that. And that still means, that doesn't mean they're, that they're unequal to each other. They're still equal to each other before and under in the, the law. In well, the I, would, I wouldn't say it's that abstract. I'd say it's before and under the law. They all have the same rights, freedom of speech, freedom of movement, freedom of whatever freedom they need, as long as it doesn't interfere with the other guy, or if you want to say, you know, equal under, in the eyes of God. Well, so, the, so that contract that is made, which is the Constitution that is written, is got the, the, the notion of equality. But how that equality is going to be expressed in legislative term is a whole different matter. In the New Deal, which is happening almost 180 years after the Constitution was written, the notion of equality comes in with the policies of redistribution. But the policy of redistribution was not there in the 1800s. Right. It is now in the 1930s. So, again, back to it, you know. Yeah, so where are we today, then? Where, where so the, that's it. After 1945, the, the socialist party is becoming more and more powerful in the Western democracy. The shift takes place from away from the freedom issue on to the equality issue. That is the power of the state. And the power of the state is going to decide how the society is going to be managed and how it is going to be run. So here it is, you know, I mean, the whole notion of freedom in, in a classical liberal term was that all men are created equal. But then Trudeau comes along in Canada and says, instead of all men are created equal, 
and we all respect each other as individual and freedom means nothing unless it is about equal uh, of individuals being free and it means nothing unless the individual is seen as an end not as a mean to somebody's end because in terms of this particular understanding of freedom every individual ultimately is a minority of one right yeah we are all in that sense one individual but what does trudeau does what is trudeau's innovation which has now become right around the western world multiculturalism all cultures are equal all cultures are equal just listen to the words right culture is a collective sense right and it's also not all individuals are equal all cultures are equal and it's not about ethnicity it's about values each culture has its own own history own making you know so a culture that is based upon a caste system say the indian culture from where i right. i was born caste system inequalities oppression in terms of your birth and so on how is that culture equal to a culture that says all men are created equal it's not the same no no yeah but according to trudeau all cultures are equal so the shift takes place under the state canada all cultures are equal the next shift will take place from within that the notion it is now a collectivist notion it will be about racial identity who is the oppressed in this culture well people of color are oppressed why are they oppressed because the white men have ruled the world white privilege whites have you know run colonies whites have exploited africa whites have exploited india whites have exploited china so white is now the guilty party where are these ideas coming from these ideas goes right back into marxism because marxism is a notion is a binary notion oppressed and oppressor yeah but in marxism the oppressed and the oppressor the oppressor is the capitalist and that's why he had to create the illusion of capital versus labor precisely right. but now with critical race theory it is not simply the capitalist who is the oppressor the capitalist is also a, a person of color in the sense he is a white man he has created this world in which there are colonies and empires and so the white man culture white man's values are now suspect in the critical race theory that's where we have arrived at you know excellent salim uh, our time just flies by so i guess we could conclude by saying that we won the war against hitler but we lost the war for freedom because that's a war that never ends i guess and requires the wisdom of eternal vigilance and that happens to be the mission of this show and also the reason why we invite our listeners to join us again each week as we continue our journey in the right direction and until then be right stay right do right act right think right and be right back here we'll see you then fade into color color into black and white under the bed clothes everything will be alright all right gentlemen First thing is I don't want you to be discouraged by the complexity of the Russian language. All I want you to do is learn a few essential words. Now, the first word we're going to learn is tovarish, which means friend. It's an obvious way to greet someone. Okay? Now let me hear you repeat it. Tovarish. 
Nationals. Come on in. Hello. Now. What, 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 what are you doing? We're learning a little Russian. Goodbye. <laughs> Show us what you hurry. It wouldn't hurt you to learn a little Russian, you know. What for? Well, I mean, suppose they liberate Stalag 13 before the Americans. They are coming? Could be. Goodbye. <laughs> All right. Who told you? That's a professional secret. I'm sorry, I can't. Uh-huh. You have a radio hidden. You were listening to broadcast. You know it is verboten. If the commandant finds out, you all go to the cooler. What did the radio say to him? <laughs> Allies are winning on all fronts. Hamburg is in ruins. Berlin is a shambles. Oh, boy. <laughs> No matter what we do, we can't win a war. 